We are coming to the tipping point in Solomon's life. Things have been looking really good for Solomon and great for the kingdom under his reign. However, uh, we've seen a little bit of the cracks of the kingdom beginning to develop in uh, these three chapters in 1 Kings, chapters 9 through 11, really show where the cracks are in Solomon's life that lead to the catastrophic failure uh, for him. And, and, and in looking at that, I think it is important to uh, examine what is shown for us in Solomon's fall. Uh, we often look at Solomon and are amazed at uh, where he was and how far he fell. And, and the things that are told to us in these three chapters, I think, are extremely instructive to help protect our hearts uh, from failure like you see Solomon regarding uh, his heart. And so as we go through these chapters, what you're going to notice is the text bounce back and forth between the glory of the kingdom and the failures of the kingdom. And so you're going to see these great high points of what God had accomplished for Solomon and what the kingdom was accomplishing. And yet at the same time, just as you begin to enjoy what God is revealing about Solomon and his reign, you're going to get these caveats and paragraphs that tell you that trouble is brewing, that trouble is coming until ultimately at the end then of chapter 11, we will see that trouble finally come to pass. So that's what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to look at uh, his failures and the fall of this kingdom and the, the, the important lessons that it teaches us uh, in regards to guarding our hearts. As chapter 9 begins, uh, it starts very positive. You might remember from last week we saw that in chapter 8 you had Solomon at the dedication of the temple offering up a, a covenantal prayer to the Lord. That what you see Solomon saying is this temple is here and it's not that God is actually in the temple but God is in heaven and when the people turn their hearts back to God and pray toward that temple then God you in heaven hear their prayer forgive their sins and return them back to you. And chapter 9 is extremely powerful because the first few verses is God coming to Solomon and confirming that very covenant and saying, that's exactly what I will do. If the people will be repentant and come to me, everything that you prayed in chapter 8, that's exactly what will take place. That God will hear that prayer and He will then forgive their sins and allow the people to come back to Him and He will turn turn his face back to the people. The big reminder is given throughout verses 3 through 9, which is Solomon, you need to walk in my ways and keep my rules and keep my statutes. We observed last time that this is an important covenantal shift, that the king must be obedient if God is going to be with the people and dwell with them. And that's confirmed here again in chapter 9. Solomon, do everything you can to walk in my ways, keep my statutes, 
statutes. Because if you don't, I'm going to turn this temple into rubble. I'm going to turn my back upon you. And all the nations are going to know that you abandoned the Lord. And that's why the temple was destroyed. So very important covenant is laid in chapter 9. And so you think everything is going to be great. Here we go. Kingdom going. Solomon has wisdom. God's confirmed his covenant. The temple has been built. God's presence is in the temple. It should be smooth sailing. But no, as we've grown accustomed to this series and like watching David and others, you're watching this pendulum swing back and forth. In verse 10, you find something interesting. We're uh, drawn to the attention back to Hiram. Remember that he is a Gentile king. And what he had done is he had supplied a, a great, vast amount of supplies for the building of the temple and for the building of Solomon's palace. All kinds of timber and wealth, everything is given. And so as a repayment, Solomon gives Hiram about 20 cities in the area of Galilee. And notice the strange thing that happens when when Hiram comes to inspect these towns. He says there in verse 13, what kind of cities have you given me? And then says in verse 14, he called them Kabul, which means worthless. <laughs> this is striking for the supposed grand kingdom with all of its wealth and power and might and riches and all that we've seen. That here now are 20 cities given to here. And here he comes and checks it all out and goes, this is junk. <laughs> this is garbage. What, what have you given me? And you might just read that and go, well, what's the big deal? Oh, well, but here's what I want you to see is rather than now Gentiles coming and praising God, they're looking at the kingdom and this Gentile king goes, eh, it's worthless. I don't see the value. You haven't given me of any, anything of importance. There's already a ding that's being shown here about this kingdom that rather than kings glorifying God for what Solomon has built and accomplished, kings are coming and saying, well, I'm just not really impressed by what you've done. In fact, this is worthless. This is all the more emphasized in this curious paragraph of chapter 9, verse 15 through uh, 22, where we are told something about Pharaoh. And what is what we're told here is Pharaoh comes in and he is able in verse 16 to capture Gezer and burn it with fire and kill the Canaanites who had lived in the city. Now, the reason why that is so notable and strange is because that's a city that Israel couldn't do that to. When they had come and conquered the land, they could not go up against that city. They failed in that and were unable to drive out the Canaanites. And yet somehow under the reign of Solomon, rather than Solomon driving out these inhabitants and and doing what God had said to do all the way back in the days of Joshua, Pharaoh comes in and does the job. The curiosity is even greater because the rest of the paragraphs make Solomon sound like Pharaoh. Pharaoh sounds like Solomon and Solomon sounds like Pharaoh because Pharaoh comes in, acts like Solomon, wipes out the Canaanites. But watch what Solomon does where it says there in verse 19 that he builds all of these store cities 
cities for his chariots, cities for his horsemen, whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and all the land of his dominion. And all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, as they so are to this day. The language there is very much at the beginning of Exodus. Remember that Exodus opens with Pharaoh building massive storage houses and enslaving other nations. And now Solomon is building massive storehouses and he is enslaving the other nations. And so you have a reversal picture happen. Rather than Solomon doing what God had said to do and driving out the Canaanites and finishing this work and establishing the kingdom, he looks much more like Pharaoh. He's got chariots, he's got horses, he's building storehouses, he's enslaving nations. While Pharaoh is the one who comes in and actually devotes to destruction the city of Gezer and the inhabitants as God had said to do in the first place. So these are these foreshadowings of problems to come. Chapter 10 continues this back and forth picture. Chapter 10 is somewhat notable. If the queen of Sheba, you've probably heard of her as somewhat famous. She has heard of the fame of Solomon. And so it is her intention to test Solomon with hard questions to see about this wisdom that he supposedly possesses. And as she is asks all these questions in verse three, Solomon is able to answer them uh, it, with, with such an amazing way that you'll notice that she even says in verses six and seven, I had heard it all the reports about you and your wisdom and your wealth and I didn't believe it but actually that's only the half of it what I had heard was just the half of your wisdom and your wealth and your mind and so then you see the queen of Sheba paying tribute bringing an enormous amount of wealth and spices into the kingdom it says unlike had ever been seen before in fact you might I put all these passages on the screen all of chapter 10 is really showing all of these Gentiles bringing these treasures as tribute to Solomon and to his kingdom. This over and over again, this repetition. They're bringing gold, they're bringing all these spices, they're bringing tribute, they're bringing wealth, they're bringing treasure. Everybody is bringing these treasures. And the Queen of Sheba is basically used as an example of that. She's just one of many who came great distances bringing tribute and listening to the wisdom of Solomon and ultimately praising God because of Solomon's wisdom. For example, chapter 10, verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever and has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And I'd highlight that was what was supposed to happen. Everybody's supposed to come to this kingdom and praise God for the righteous ruler who who has this great wisdom and is able to execute justice and righteousness. Notice how that's set against chapter 9, where Hiram goes, what is this? (laughs) 
This is worthless. This is nothing. Well, this chapter is showing what it was ultimately supposed to be. And the rest of chapter 10 is just describing this uh, uh, amazing wealth. If you have the time, we just read through it all. But you might just scan your eyes like from verse 14 on. And you'll see these huge numbers in your Bible about the amount of gold. The, the first thing that's said there, the 666 talents of gold that was coming in every year. That roughly translates to about 25 tons of gold. Now, if you want to break out your calculators and do, you know, 25 tons, 25 times 2,000 times the price of gold today. Oh, my. This is unbelievable. And that was annually. That's the amazing wealth of this kingdom. It is staggering the wealth that is that is being depicted here. Look at verse 21. The, the second part of verse 21. None of these vessels that Solomon made was, was out of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Silver, that's like just leaving a penny on the ground. Whatever. We don't care about silver because this kingdom is so wealthy. Verses 23 through 25 give the, the great summary. This is, this is your apex moment. Verse 23, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind, and every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. That is the perfect summary of what this kingdom looks like. Nations are coming in, voluntarily bringing tribute, praising God because of Solomon's reign, because of his wisdom, and because of his wealth. We have hit now the highest point of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And then if you have, if you like marking your Bibles, you can draw a line because That's the end of it right here. That that really should be the chapter break. Right there at verse 25, that's the end of it. Because the rest of the story is it's now destruction. It is now all going to come completely apart after describing immense wealth and security and peace and righteousness. You think, well, nothing's going to stop this. But watch how this is now described. Because from verse 26 of chapter 10, really to verse 9 uh, of chapter 11, we are going to read about essentially Solomon violating every single command that God gave for the kings to keep that was given in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Because we are told like in chapter 10 verse 26, Solomon begins to acquire all kinds of horses and chariots, myriads of them, multiplies them, which God said in Deuteronomy 17 that the kings of God were not supposed to do. They were not to acquire all of those horses. And in particular, God said, you weren't supposed to go to Egypt to acquire any of those horses either. Never go back to Egypt was always God's statement. And we're told in chapter 10, verse 28, that Solomon is getting his horses even from Egypt itself. And then it tells us this staggering picture of of his wealth as he's acquiring wealth upon wealth. Not only was that told to us 
in, in all of chapter 10, those, those pictures, but this import of horses and we have the pictures of wealth, of gold, of silver. And that also was a violation of Deuteronomy chapter 17. Remember that God said to not acquire wealth, to not then heap it upon themselves. And then perhaps the one that we know the most is in chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned, turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father." This also was stated in Deuteronomy 17 that the kings were not to have many wives. And I want you to see in this very short section, what you see Solomon doing is breaking every single command that God had told him not to do. And I think what is particularly interesting about all of this is that the result was was clearly stated in verses 3 and 4. Solomon's heart was no longer wholly devoted to the Lord. This is the end result. Solomon's heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God. And this is where we need to stop and really take inventory and consider what has happened to Solomon and what is going on. Because when we read this scene, we we ask, really, what happened? Why would this happen? How could somebody as wise as Solomon, someone who was seeking God, someone who built this great temple, someone who understood that the temple was not where God dwelled, someone who seemed to understand exactly who God was and his role in it. For when God had came, came to him, he said, ask me anything. Solomon said, well, I'm ruling your people, so give me a wise understanding heart. And I think when we read these pictures and we read these words, it's easy to be shocked But what I would like for you to do is actually be frightened by what has happened. Because if you see Solomon with all of what he has and all of what he was told, still have a divided heart that was no longer true to him, then we need to be also just as careful And I hope as you try to ask and answer the question, well, what happened to Solomon? Why did this all happen? I hope what you're observing is that there's some great irony here. That it is the rich blessings of God that become the stumbling block by which Solomon falls. Because God is the one who's blessing him. 
God has given him this great kingdom. God has subjugated the enemies. God has given him great wealth. God has given him great wisdom. He's given him all of these things. So here are these great blessings that have been given to Solomon. And yet it's the very blessings that are turning his heart away from God. I think that is such a fascinating thing to to, to really consider. That God has blessed him. God has given given him these things. And it's those very things that turn him away. For example, we see in the picture here that his wealth had turned Solomon's heart away. God had specifically said, don't acquire gold and silver like that. And yet we see Solomon doing that. His focus is on gathering more and more. And he's gathering horses. He's gathering chariots. I mean, think about the ideas that he gathers so much that silver is counted as essentially nothing. Can you even get your mind around how much wealth he must have accumulated? Can you get your mind around 25 tons of gold every year? It is staggering. And there should have been for this king that we don't want this anymore. This is, this is enough. God said not to accumulate all of this. He, he specifically told me as king to not do this. But what I hope that we will see is that what wealth can ultimately do to our hearts. There is a reason why God tells us that we need to be content with what we have. There is a reason why God says it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. There's a reason he says that. We can be very dismissive of that. Oh, you know, but I'm fine. And I want you to see Solomon has great wealth. And he's turning against God with that great wealth. Wasn't supposed to do that. Wasn't supposed to accumulate all that. But he did it anyway. Undoubtedly, with these relationships with these women is also part of the problem. It's told to us quite specifically that God was very concerned about how marrying a bunch of foreign women would turn the heart of the king. And I think it is interesting just to think about the numbers there for a minute. When you look at verse 3 and it says that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And some will try to play it off. Well, you know, back in those days when you made alliances, you know, you you had the daughter of the foreign king became your wife. And so 1,000? You know, at what point is enough enough? You know, we're on 10, we're on 20, 40, 60, 100, 150, 200, 300, 400, 500. You realize if you visited each one a day, it would take you more than three years to see them all. It is unbelievable. But this is also the very problem is sometimes this is what our world tells us is that, well, this will be your happiness. This is what you really need. I want you to see Solomon just keeps getting more and more women. You know, at what point would you say, okay, definitely 701. She's the one for me. 
You know, it's clearly she's the one. The other 700, not so much, but it's number 701, she's the one. You know, this is the kind of world we live in, though. We live in a world that is so sex-driven. It's such a culture that you're identified by, that that's who you are. That's what's going to make you who you are. I hope you'll look at Solomon's life and notice that's not it. That's not going to bring happiness. That's not going to be pleasing to God. And it's not going to be what you need. It's 1,000. And yet, so often our world tells us that's the answer. You need somebody else. You need a different marriage. You need to find somebody different. And we notice that being a people pleaser is really part of Solomon's problem. If you notice the text, it tells us ultimately that you have like there in verses 3 and 4 uh, in describing the, these women that, that they are the ones who are turning his heart away from, from the Lord. Uh, I, I think that's interesting to, to be mindful of that you have Solomon's heart being turned away from God as a way to please these women who want to put up all of these idols, who want these places of foreign worship. That's what they're looking for. So, oh, Solomon, you know, make me happy and build me this little uh, place where I can worship my gods. One of the things you see in Solomon's failure is his concern for these wives and this family above God. He's putting them first rather than telling them, no, we can't have foreign idols and we cannot put up these worship sites and we can't do things like that. We will never do anything so long as I'm king. He caves into them and does what they want. Again, another warning that is given to us about placing family above God. Uh, I've said that before, the idea of focusing on the family is a dangerous idea. Be careful. Focus on God. That is your priority. When you focus on God, then the other things will fit in properly and you will be what you ought to be in terms of your family and in terms of your neighbors and in terms of your work. But we lose sight of God and focus on these other things and that takes us away from God. And that's what you see happening here. But rather than blaming the women, I want you to notice something fascinating about the picture that's given here. Because I intentionally stopped the reading in verses 3 and 4. Because in verses 3 and 4, you will notice that it says that Solomon was old and his wives turned his heart away. But look at verse 5. For Solomon went after the Asherah the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Sometimes we look at it and go, oh, Solomon let those women go and worship those gods. But notice verse 5 says, so did Solomon. And I want you to see how egregious it was. In verse 7, it tells us that Solomon built the high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So, picture this. God's temple sits on Zion, on this hill. And then there is the Kidron Valley. You might be familiar to you about New Testament, Jesus leaving temple, going to the Kidron Valley. And the mountain across to the east is the Mount of Olives. 
So right there in the very presence of God's temple is Solomon building temples to these foreign gods. And he's worshiping them in the very front of the temple that God had had put there. That's the imagery of, of what's happening there. Here's Solomon building it right there. And so what I want you to see is it's not just simply, oh, well, you know, they were these bad influences. But Solomon did this himself. Solomon did what he wanted to do. He didn't, he didn't have to build that there. Even if you say, okay, well, my wife's going to let them have their idols. Does that mean that he had to go worship them too? No. And did he have to build them as a competition to the temple of God on the other hill, right there close to each other with just this Kidron Valley right in the middle? And so what I want us to see in this picture is that all of these things led up to stealing his heart away. The accumulation of wealth, his desire for all these women, being a people pleaser to try to keep them happy and do what they want, even though what they were asking for was a sin, and establishing this idolatrous situation, all of these ultimately lead to his downfall. Now, what's the big thing that I want to talk about? The big thing that I want to talk about is is right there in verse 4. So look at it one more time, and let's finish with this verse, because this is, I think, the staggering part of all of it. Chapter 11, verse 4. Notice the end of verse 3 says, His wife's turned his heart, turned away his heart. But watch carefully verse 4. For it, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. What I think it is so important for us to observe and where the ultimate failure comes in for Solomon is that there is a need to finish strong. Solomon, for all of these chapters and for all of these years, is doing great in serving God and ruling in this kingdom. And it is here in verse 4 that tells us the time marker. It's when Solomon is old. It's when Solomon is coming to the end of his time that now he allows this to slip and his heart begins to turn away from God. And I think this is so important because this is ultimately what happens with things that are uh, trying to steal our hearts is that over time, little by little by little by little, they chip away at our faith. They chip away at what we know we ought to do and what we know is right. And finally, we give in to those things. You know, it's easy on the surface to go, oh, no, I would never let wealth, you know, chip away at me. I would never do it. And in the beginning, we might be quite right. But over time, and that's what happened with Solomon. He's doing great. Everything's fine. Wealth, okay. Seems like he's he's got it under control. He's okay. But over time, that very thing changed. And I want us to be so cognizant that it is so easy for us to allow time to go by and allow our hearts to be turned away from God. It is 
easy to lose our intensity. It is easy to become weary. It is easy to no longer be careful for the things of God. It is easy to allow this to become ritual and custom. It is easy for this to just turn into a normal discipline or just something that we do. The thing that starts off as the most important thing, the greatest thing of our lives, our greatest joy, our greatest glory is Christ and Him crucified. But give it some time. And we lose that fire. And we're no longer so intense for the things of God. I always like to try to cause everyone to think back to the moment when you came up out of the waters of baptism, your your big to-do list and goals for God that you had. You know, you were so excited about the gospel. You were so excited to have your sins washed away and you were ready to tell everybody about it. You were ready to change your life. You were ready to do the 180. You were ready to rip out all the bad stuff. You were going to be a servant of God. And my question is, do we still have that same intensity and that same heart and that same desire that we had at the start? We can look back at that and say that we are continuing to press on in that way. I think we must be so careful that time does not destroy our zeal and that rather than thinking that as time goes by with all of our spiritual growth and all of our spiritual maturity that we can kind of knock it into spiritual cruise control and you know, coast our way into heaven. We've built up enough momentum spiritually over the years, and so we're just going to be able to kind of coast on in to see the danger of that, especially in the life of Solomon. Because Solomon has that spiritual wisdom. And he has that spiritual maturity. And he has that spiritual understanding. But when did the failure come? At the end, when he grew old, then his heart turned away. We must be so careful that in our journey with God, we are not allowing time to dull us, that we don't look at spiritual coasting as an option, that we don't retire from God, that we do not look at God and say, well, it's time to take my ease. I fought my spiritual battles and I can relax now because that is a huge danger and ultimately what I think Satan wants us to do. I would suggest to us as we enter into this new year that we approach this year and every year that our walk with God, we must press even harder than we did before. And I'll end that by noting that's exactly how Paul looked at it. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. <laughs> I would say to Paul, you haven't grasped it yet you haven't made it yet you're not there yet really brothers I do not consider that I have made it my own but one thing I do 
Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now catch this. Let those of us who are mature think this way. That's what Paul's teaching right here. The mature understand that the successes of the past are in the past. And we must press on. And our victories over wealth and sexual immorality and idols and people pleasing and whatever else are the things that can steal away our hearts are wonderful that we have had those victories in the past, but don't think that those things cannot continue to chip away at our faith and cause us to slip. So a reason Satan uses these things. And the frightening thing is that the very God who is blessing us and blessing us and blessing us is the one we are turning our back on because we become consumed by the various things that he gives us. Let's be careful and let's press on and not allow these things to steal our hearts. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, Solomon is a, a, a frightening picture for us, Lord. To, to look at someone who loved you the way that he did, a person who was seeking you, someone you talked to, And yet the things of this world still stole his heart away. And God, we pray that that would not be the case with our hearts. Lord, we pray this evening that you would secure our hearts, give us strength. The strength to identify areas that we may have that are stealing our hearts away. And God, forgive us for the times that we have allowed these blessings of yours and these things that you give to us to cause us to have divided hearts. Forgive us when we've been more concerned about wealth and health. We've been concerned about physical pleasure. We've been concerned about the idols that we, we value. Forgive us for that. And Lord, we pray for strength for the next day ahead that we would not fall short of the goal that has been set before us. Lord, we pray that you'd remind us of the intensity and zeal that we need to carry out our purpose here. Give us the strength to not grow weary, to not lose heart. And please allow our lives to be focused on you, to pay careful attention to you. Help us to do that. Give us the strength that we need. Lord, we live in a very distracted time. We live in a culture that tells us that our happiness is outside of you. And so, Lord, please protect our hearts. Give us wisdom as we deal with these temptations as they come at us so that we will always choose you. And, Lord, help us to have the strength and the discerning heart and the wisdom to see it as it comes and choose you every time. Forgive us for our failures. Lord, pick us up and press us on to that great goal 
Because, Lord, we want to be with you. So forgive us and help us in Jesus' name. Amen.